2: It's time for another episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman, and we've got a very special guest with us today, Marcus, to talk about a band that we both adore. This new documentary about King Crimson, and we want to welcome the director of the film, Toby Amies, to the podcast. Good morning, or good Good afternoon, as it is over there. Uh, To be
1: honest, it's sort of morning for me. I'm a bit of a vampire. (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's how you get it all done when you're in a uh, deadline mode right
1: when i was growing up i realized that if i stayed up later than anybody else in my family i got a house to myself
2: so it's
1: it is easier to get work done if no one else is doing work around you in my experience
3: that is true now is that where you developed your love of making movies during those hours when everybody else was asleep
1: you're making an assumption that i love making movies <laughs>
3: You, well,
1: it's an acute suffering, Ah.
2: (laughs) especially if you're working with uh, a guy like Fripp, right? It could be challenging or even frustrating. I think it's important to state
1: that it's both challenging and inspiring.
3: I can see that double edge like that big time because watching the movie we saw the real side of who Robert Fripp was, and we heard from uh, many people. Before we really jump into talking about it, can you tell us how you became involved with the documentary, how you connected with Robert Fripp, and the whole process of the beginning of the documentary?
1: Sure. It was for geographical reasons, principally. My family live in the same town as, as Robert in in Worcestershire, bearing in mind two two members of, of Led Zeppelin are from, and... Um, black sabbath used to rehearse there you could call it the home of metal west midlands represent some, he made, he
2: made um, the w with his hands and then the m the downward this like yeah. flipped it so you guys because yeah. we're not on video we got to at least okay, let him know what right. we're doing that's here.
1: probably for the best
2: um, although your hair is looking rather nice this morning i have to say toby that's very sweet of you from the front <laughs> jungle in the front desert in the
1: back Yeah, so I met Robert socially via my parents. He'd met my parents and um, then I did a bit of work for him on a radio documentary I made for Radio 4 about archiving. And then I just was round his house one night for just before Christmas and um, was telling him a story about how my first film, The Man Whose Mind Exploded, had inspired somebody to send me a message saying that they had created a sort of sex cult based on the notion of cosmic fuck, which was a tattoo that the main character in the film had. My r- recording machine doesn't work in my
3: head. I can't remember even how old I am now. Never know if I'm 60 or 70.
1: And I was saying to Robert how extraordinary it was to make a work of art that was one thing to you and then became something else to other people. And as a result, you know, I had this conversation with him, how about how great it was that, you know, that, that your work of art carries on. It gets a life of its own after it's finished. And the next morning I got an email saying, will you pop round to the house? There's something I want to discuss with you. It's going to be 50 years since King Crimson's inception. And we should make a film called Cosmic Fuck, spelled F-U-K-C. Mm-hmm. prog rock Pond Scum, set to bum you out so that was the working title at the beginning that was the working title that was the (laughs) there are there are two iterations of the film and that was the first iteration of the film you know who would say no to an offer like that
3: the cosmic fuck got robert fripp interested in working with you about the documentary
1: i think so he'd seen he'd seen my first film and he liked it and i think that he You know, at the time, he said to me that he didn't want to make a King Crimson film that was like all of the other, you know, rock documentaries out there. And he, I think he was confident that I would not make a film that was like all of the others in that way.
2: I just want to say right here that this is a very modern look at history. The look of the film, the approach, the feel, your editing, everything feels very modern, even though it's looking back on 50 years of a band.
1: When I was making, again, when I was making my first film, a friend of mine said, a painter called Dolly Thompson, she said, you're working with an extraordinary person. Let him be the guide to, to how the film takes form. It, it may not be immediately apparent, but some of the sort of ideas I experienced in working with King Crimson informed what the film became to be, came to be. And, and one of those things in particular is this idea of being present, being in the moment. And I think that one of the film's successes is that when you're watching it, you're in the same moment as the band members. What I didn't want to do is have a bunch of like old men sitting in chairs talking about the good old days. When when ex-members of the band turn up, they operate as a sort of chorus, commenting on, on the action that's happening in the middle. And the reason I did that is not to dismiss the experience of the older members of the band or the previous members of the band at all, but it's to draw a comparison. Because you're not seeing live footage, as it were, of Bill Bruford playing in King Crimson now, if you see Jeremy Stacey or, or Pat playing drums and Bill's talking about the pressure that he was under, you begin to understand the pressure that other members of the band are in now. So you're drawing an analogy between those two things without getting bogged down in basically doing a wikipedia article with pictures and also in when i started off making the film i did i did a certain amount of research and very quickly came into contact with the intense and often quite bitter arguments about which version of the band was better or what happened when why things happened in the past that stuff is just not very cinematic if your core material is is old men arguing about the past, you have to find a way of making that vital and fun to watch on screen. And so that's one of the reasons we keep it in, in the moment as much as we possibly can.
3: It was a great way to present the history because I agree with you. I would have been disappointed had I seen a bunch of old men arguing about what the best lineup of King Crimson was. There really was no best lineup. All of them were insanely talented. All of them were sick musicians. All of them were different albums and at different phases of King Crimson's uh, musical history. But each one of them was valid, important, and incredible. It's just, you know, which one relates to you the best? Which phase of King Crimson's music hits you in the feels the hardest? And... I think you did a good job talking about all the different eras of King Crimson, you know, putting it together. And I'm, again, glad you presented it the way you did. Now, was it a challenge to find this type of a story or did it kind of happen itself?
1: There are plenty of people who said online that I don't know what I'm doing. And I think that's true to some extent, and the reason I think that's true is because I try to enter a situation like this with as open mind as possible, um, as Robert might have describe might describe it, sort of, you know, that I was innocent of King Crimson,
0: so <laughs> yeah. I was
1: keen to keen to keep a certain amount of that innocence because that gave me by my perspective on king crimson becomes analogous to the audience's experience of king crimson as long as i'm not asking like really stupid questions and as you're both aware in the film on the occasions where i do ask gets i ask stupid questions i get told off for asking stupid questions well <laughs> that's fritz <Fripp's laughs> um, nature isn't it i mean yeah but know, this is really the thing is, is that, but before getting into that i just want to state that that what i wanted to do was discover the principles at work at the heart of King Crimson, because I think what's fascinating about that band is that, as we've established, it's got all of these different iterations and they're very, very different. And at the same time, it remains King Crimson. So I wanted to sort of see where the consistent principles were And then see how those operated in different versions in the band and particularly how they affected how people made music and how they operated in the band that that was that was kind of my core approach i suppose and then kudos
2: to you sir because you really achieved it in in large numbers and and i'm sorry to jump in but one of my favorite parts of that is where you take two different interviews one with baloo and one with bill bruford And you piece them together for those two to explain their unusual relationship with Robert. And the thing that Bruford said that really got me was, he was talking about the need for change. He says, otherwise you turn into the moody blues. And I was like, oh, smack. He just totally took a shot at a big wide swatch of the bands that were part of Progressive early on.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also, you didn't use the term prog. You know, I've been in Robert's company where that term has been used, and it's not viewed with any great degree of enthusiasm. And I think quite rightly, because once something becomes prog, it gets stuck in this genre, it's put in a box, and there's no idea of evolution or development possible. At least with the term progressive, there is this idea that it could go on to be something else. For me, it's a bit like when people talk about documentary, as a genre i'm like it's not a fucking genre it's a way of making films that includes all of the other genres because like when i put the um uh, listing for the film on imdb under genre i put documentary comedy horror no. and i don't think that that's a more that's a very accurate description of the uh of the film but it also allows for like the principles at the heart of king crimson it allows for for the possibility of change, the possibility of something different, the possibility, I guess, of something better. And that seemed to me to be one of the core principles at the heart of King Crimson that maybe some of those other bands from that era and that genre don't share, is this idea of development. They keep on doing the same things.
2: You were joking about the title at the beginning. How do you come around to the very straightforward title of In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50, from all those different like different ideas.
1: I had two other working titles for the film, one of which was called Trigger's Broom. And Trigger's Broom refers to a scene in a long-running British sitcom called Only Fools and Horses. And Trigger is a road sweeper, and he's been a road sweeper for 30 years. And he says that he's never changed his broom. He's always had the same broom and every year he has to change the brush part of the broom and every 10 years he has to change the handle of the broom. So it's not the same broom, but it is the same broom. And that seemed to me to be a very good metaphor for for King Crimson. There's a a Greek reference which is far more sophisticated, but I like Trigger's broom better. Um, And then the other title for the film was gonna be Time Lords. When I was looking at the sort of the principles at play here, I was aware that two of the big themes, both of King Crimson and and what I wanted to put in the film, were time and death. And obviously there's a big link between those two things. The film starts with a metronome in the skull. It's only there for a couple of seconds, but I think it's sort of, it's designed to just sort of go, this is the arena that we're playing in. One member of the band, is facing, you know, the, the harshest, most stark of, of ex- existential challenges. He's facing his own death. As they all are, though, to one to a greater degree or, or more, they're all getting on and several members of the band have already died. So this idea of them being Time Lords was interesting because it was fascinating to me that they are all, all, are all facing their own mortality to a greater or lesser degree, and yet I would come around a corner and find them having arguments not arguments but like heated discussions about the tiniest increments of time and and so there was a wonderful irony to that as well but and then and then Gavin told me that like if Pat hits a cymbal on his edge of end of the stage by the time that that sound gets to Gavin's part of the stage it's already out of time True. You know, so they're dealing with these incredible, minute measurements.
3: You showed a little bit of that argument or discussion, I should say, in the film when they were talking about that back and forth on the drums. And yeah. it was really fascinating. And it's like, man, working with these guys in some ways has to be difficult because they're so in touch and tuned into every minute detail and every single millisecond was it hard for you to process this and did this change the way you looked at filming this film because of the whole time stamp or the uh, time details that you're talking about
1: I think, in, in some ways, one of the hardest things about that was that I was just in awe of their ability. I've been paid for playing music, but I can't find middle C on a, on a piano keyboard. My old keyboard literally has writing on the keys, so I know which notes huh. to press in which, which songs and so on. It was very intimidating, Ouch. in a way. Um, but it is also like, as Robert you know, says in, in one of the interviews, he compares himself to an olympic athlete there's a
2: point where you or someone off camera asks frip why he doesn't take a day off or a weekend off and and he uses the athletic comparison uh, that you're referencing about like, you know, you don't get that back. And I think it's true that when it comes to the athlete and their body, and that's their that's their instrument, they have to stay up to date. They have to work out every day. It's funny because he was very offish to you about that whole thing there because he really doesn't understand why you're questioning that he practices four or five hours a day. He just does. It's amazing. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's, it, that goes back to my sort of relationship with Robert and the band in general, is that they're so used to being in that world that they don't realize necessarily how extraordinary what they do is. Yeah. And it is like to be asked to join King Crimson, I, when I was sort of talking to my friends about working with them, I said, I said, you know, getting asked to join King Crimson is a bit like becoming a made man in the mafia or something once you said you, you know I, well, i used to play with a band called king crimson it's like you're telling people that you're in the top 10 of what you do in the world
3: another concept that came up quite a bit throughout the film that blew my mind and was fascinating to me was the silence aspect when he said for silence to become audible, it requires a vehicle and that vehicle is music. I just was blown away by that whole part of the film. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, you were asking about the structure of the film yeah. as well. And and so the silence side of it really plays into that. So, so the film opens with a, a sequence of photographs of, well, a film of empty auditoriums and they're silent. And and the idea is to give the audience a sense of what the band must feel. You know, how intimidating it must be to walk into an auditorium and see 5,000 empty seats and know that in two or three hours, it's your job to entertain, to, to move, to inspire, to give everybody in those seats a peak experience. And obviously, there's a lovely contrast between both the empty seats and a full auditorium and then a silent space and then a space which is full of King Crimson's music. There's a marvelous perversity that I think is entirely appropriate to Robert's approach to music of opening a music documentary with somebody talking about the importance of silence. (laughs) That tells you right there that you are dealing with a very unusual approach to the making of music.
3: That absurdity is important, and if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Bill Bruford who said in the film that you need a sense of absurdity because without absurdity we are lost, and that's important because Robert Fripp and these guys are intense as fuck. They're intense musicians. They're heavy duty, and they take their art very seriously, but Throughout the film, the sense of humor was always there and the absurdity shined brightly. So let's talk about that absurdity and how did it play a role in the film as well? And was it fun to uh, delve into that aspect of the band because of the intensity?
1: You know, as, as you were alluding to before with the conversation between Baloo and, and Bruford, that there's this American-English dynamic or American-British dynamic that's really important to the band and still remains a big part of, of the band. And I think there's something about humour in there as well, because there are very different types of humour in America and England. But at the same time, there's this you know wonderful fusion of, of those two things knowing robert socially i knew he had a very good sense of humor and it was one of my frustrations in the early part of making the film when he wasn't really engaging with me or the camera and was kind of kind of crotchety
2: with me and would often walk away did you ever stop and think why the fuck did he have me do this if he's going to be this way
1: what do you think do you think that if i was commissioned to make a film by somebody who then almost immediately started walking away from me whenever I tried to film him. Do you think I might have been a little bit frustrated on occasion? I,
2: I would have started filming the other guys first and said, I'll come back to Mr. Happy over here. Yeah, I
1: I tried to do that as well. I effectively had to make the film in its entirety, which was Cosmic Fuck, Progress, Pond Scum, Set to Bum You Out, in order to demonstrate to him that the film really needed some Robert Fripp in it didn 't have to be about Robert Fripp, and I think that was always his concern, but it did need some Robert Fripp in there to uh, to unlock it It was yeah, it was very frustrating, but also I think it's important to point out that I hope it 's clear already that i 've got a tremendous amount of respect for these musicians. I may not like all of the music, but i 've got an incredible amount of respect for them. There were plenty of points where I was like, I can understand why they don 't want me in the way you know they're there to do something else other than be in some documentary they're there to make incredible music and it's a very hard job and it's a particularly hard job if you've got some dick with a camera sort of jamming it in your face but there's also simultaneously there's a point when i've got a job to do you, know, and, and so you brought I me need, here to
2: do this come on guy. yeah i do
1: need some material to work with so it's a difficult balance to achieve and i think that ultimately we got there but i do want to make it clear that 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 whilst it was frustrating on occasion, uh, I do understand why.
2: Now, on the other hand, Bill Rieflin was very forthcoming, part of the American contingency, right? Very forthcoming. But with an English
1: sense of humor.
2: Oh, God, does he ever, or did oh, he yeah. ever. But he was very frank with, with the camera about where he was, stage four, colon cancer, and facing his own mortality. There's a mm. scene where he's driving and just talking to you in the camera. I said, oh, my God. Toby's foreshadowing, we're going to lose him before this film is over. Mm -hmm. And then there's that scene towards the end where you're just chit chatting with him and you're in the room and he says, "Ah, I don't feel so good. I'm going to go take a pill and lay down. I was just saying to the boys
0: that in playing the song, that particular song, yeah, that one at the very last part before the really theme comes in, it, it, it hit it for the first time for me. It was very, very exciting.
2: And I knew at that moment that he wasn't making it to the credits. And it really Mm. hit me because in that short time, I don't know Bill from Adam, but in that short time, you made me feel for him. Now, I am also a colon cancer advocate. It's in my family. So that hit me really hard. And I think anyone who has dealt with that really felt more emotion because of that part about Bill's story. So thanks for telling that. It makes hmm. people aware of it and it makes people realize it's okay to talk about
1: it in a in a broader way i think that the bill's story is both very personal and the way he describes it is is unique to him at the same time as i said you know we're all facing mortality mm-hmm. you know, we're all facing choices as to how we use our time before we die and as a documentary maker You are always looking for ways to communicate to your audience why your subject matters. And very early on, I realized that, you know, with with Bill's permission, I was able to demonstrate that King Crimson are so important as a work of art that it was worth spending your last days on Earth playing with them. That allowed me, and Bill's grace in terms of how he shared his story with me and with an audience, allowed us to see that King Crimson really do matter. And as he says in that in that car conversation, the only thing that matters is the work, because the work is the only thing that lasts. He, he, he was very generous, uh, graceful with me in terms of, of how he shared that story, and I think he was very aware of that process. More than any other member of the band, he understood the filmmaking process and how his relationship with the camera um, operated. But through his story, we get to see why King Crimson is important. And I think also some of the more philosophical principles of playing King Crimson, and I think was less inclined to fight against them as a result.
3: Did you know when you did that last filming with Bill that that would be your last time seeing him?
1: Well, I I think about that every time I watch the film because I say, have you got anything final and pithy to say? I was about to say, I've got some some balls on me but actually the process of filming making this film meant that i had to retract my testicles because i got kicked in that area so many times during making it no i don't think that i was like i i think i think it's fair to say that i was aware that it might be the last time i saw him but that i hoped it wouldn't be
3: another thing that i thought was really interesting and fascinating was that somewhere in the movie it was said that bill bill was Robert Fripp's only real friend who ever joined the band. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. That meant that he liked the musicians and respected them, but they weren't really friends the way he and Bill Rifflin were.
1: If you have an unpleasant nature and dislike people, that should be no barrier to work
3: throughout most of the film showed no emotion almost like no empathy but you know he has empathy because he's talking about mr bennett and what mr bennett said to him years ago and that long pause was powerful i was like holy cow
2: yeah i noticed too i'm watching and i'm watching and i'm like what's the effect here and then i realized he stopped himself because thinking of it i saw one tear start to come down his cheek and i was like Holy shit,
1: man! I took te- that. Took so many takes. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. God,
3: <laughs> <we'll cut that. laughs> <You> got a time <laughs> out. <laughs> <Kobe>. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but we call
1: that we call that the mega pause. And and certainly in terms of how the film was structured, again because you start with the discussion of silence. And, and it's not in the film, but, but Bill Rieflin said to me that one of Robert's favorite aphorisms is that duration is subjective. And as I said, it is a film about different ways of viewing and experiencing time as much as anything else. So you have the discussion of silence, and then when the megapause turns up, you have a very profound and, and you know, quite uncomfortable in parts, experience of, of silence. I think that, I think, you know, with cinema, that what you do is you go into a cinema and you, you're you shown human beings facing different types of, of challenges and problems. And those problems are analogous to the problems that we've experienced in our own lives. But that, that, that period with Robert where he doesn't say anything gives you a chance to examine him and see his humanity in a way that, I don't want to say it unlocks him, but it, it, it gives us a chance to see him as a human being that maybe hasn't shown up until that point. Mm-hmm. And it was very important to me, particularly with Robert's you know, reputation for being a tyrant and so on, as Bill Bruford said, like a cross between Joseph Stalin, Mahatma Gandhi, and the Marquis de Sade, <laughs> that, that it was really important to see that there's a human being there. It's not just a caricature of a despotic band leader. I wanted the audience to see that this is a human being in in spite of their reputation.
2: We've talked a lot about silence, but two members of King Crimson who delivered a lot of sound are highlighted in the film as well. Uh, Ian McDonald only made one album with the band and then left, and his heartfelt, deep apology for hurting Robert, because Fripp was real clear that his departure, and I guess Michael left too, that it really broke his heart. Said
0: the straight man to the late man, where have you been? I've been here and
3: I've been
2: And I wondered if that experience didn't harden him a little bit to not allow that to happen again because it hurt him so badly. And then the other person who really uh, had a great role in this film is Mel Collins, Who was in the band before and then came back had an amazing career in between so those two guys have been commissioned through the decades really with creating that unique sound the saxophone lends to the king crimson soundscape personally
1: i think that michael giles is the key that unlocks it because i don't think anybody drums like michael giles
2: Hmm. Maybe um, he just feels the whole thing more, Toby.
1: When I listen to the first album, it's like his drums are not really in the center; they're in. They're, it's almost like
2: they circum. They, they
1: circle it. they're holding everything, and they're not. They're not containing it, but they're like holding everything. There's something unique about Michael's drumming that I think is really foundational, and I think you can kind of hear it. Pat told me an interesting story that um, Bill told pat things that jamie had taught him so there's this nice you know sort of lineage through the king crimson drummers some of the same techniques and approaches continue even through the different drummers that maybe they had cause to to regret it in the past although michael didn't didn't express any regret whatsoever
2: no he Um, just said he was really tired and he realized this is what it was going to be and it was too much for him right
1: I don't know to what degree you know my experience as a documentary maker making a film with King Crimson in the in the 2020s is analogous to being in King Crimson in 1969 I imagine not very but having been in that creative space I can tell you it gets some of your best work out of you but it's not a lot of fun and so I, I absolutely understand why people want to go, okay, well, that was very interesting. We did some good stuff, but I don't want to do that anymore. Thank you very much. You know?
2: That's a good way to put it, man. He is Toby Amy He's our guest this week on The Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Let's pause for the cause and come back with more talking about King Crimson and his amazing documentary Well, man, the celebration of the holiday season is already underway at Crooked Eye, right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hapro. The season is upon us, and you know what that means. Special brews from the back room,
3: man. Yeah, the holiday season is quite awesome. It's not only a time for special adult beverages. It is Uh a time for people to gather with their friends and... A place like Crooked Eye is the perfect place to gather with friends and family.
2: It is a family of friends in a large uh, way there at the brewery. Uh, you don't have to have your mug and the rafters to come and make a new friend. They'll always a warm and welcoming atmosphere. And if you're wondering what goes on there, well, you can go to their Facebook page and look at the latest picture of the board. And it'll give you an idea of what's up on the board. Plus, they have craft cocktails with Pennsylvania Spirits, and on certain nights, if you're lucky, that Salty Vets Barbecue we always talk about. It's all happening with all the music and all the fun on the big stage at Crooked Eye in Hatboro.
3: We'd like to wish everybody at Crooked Eye a very merry holiday season and a happy new year, of course. And a good Kwanzaa if you're celebrating.
2: But mainly we want to thank them for their support all year and into... What is the wrap-up of our fifth year as a podcast? Thanks to Paul and Paul and everybody at Crooked Eye. Back and refreshed from the break, thanks to Crooked Eye Brewery, Ray Coob and Marcus, with our guest Toby Ames, who made this amazing film about King Crimson that we got to see, and now it's coming out. When is it hitting, and where can people find it, Toby? It's still
1: playing in a couple of cinemas in the States. Um, so if you go to www. I T O C T C K dot com, uh, in the court King dot com, but just okay. as a, in letters, uh, you can see where the screenings are, and then it's on worldwide video on demand. So that's like iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, uh, from December the first
3: will it be part of any of the uh streaming services as free versus on demand will, will it be like part of the netflix subscription or anything along those lines
1: it will just be on demand at the moment um
3: will people be able to buy like blu-rays or a you know Blu- it-
1: blu-ray is already available that you can get that through burning shed or through amazon's so there's a there's a sort of small blu-ray and then there's a classic kind of king crimson box set type blu-ray as well with lots of
2: extras on it including clips from Cosmic Fuck, Prog Rock, Pondscope, <laughs> <out. laughs> This is the part where I tell you that if you are a King Crimson fan and you're listening, or if you're listening and you know somebody who loves them, get them this for the holiday gift. It will be worth it. No matter what you got to go through to get it, uh, check it out and make sure that the Crimson fan in your life can watch this because I think it's essential. Even at this stage.
1: When I started making this film, I was very aware that there was a huge fan base with a very particular set of expectations regarding the film and the band. It was my intention to take those expectations into account, deliver on them, but maybe not in the way that people were expecting. One of my favorite things about the response to the film is that even the nerdiest of Crimson Nerds seem to have appreciated
2: it and it's a very the nerdiest sport. of the nerdy you, you sure because that's well, that is there are some very
1: i nerdy- i know those people recognize i think that like the people who've managed to make it all the way through you know the elephant talk message boards or the reddits or <laughs> you know that they know everything anyway that was always my approach is like if you really care about chapter and verse of King Crimson, it's all there, whether it's on the message boards or, you know, in in Sid Smith's magnificent book, there's not anything I can tell those people now, except what I can put on the film by interviewing the people that survived. And I also think it's important to state that the second, after we have the credits of everybody who's in the film, the next set of credits are the people who are not in the film, because it was just not possible for me to do justice to every single member of the band in King Crimson. It's not comprehensive in that way, but it never could be because it has to be an entertaining hour and a half. And if you have a cast of characters, 19 people long, we would be an hour into the film just dealing with everybody's biographies.
3: Absolutely. One of the scenes that really wowed me was the dancing in the rain scene. How did that come about, and where did you film it? As I said, I,
1: I sort of, I try to approach things with this degree of, of innocence. It's somewhere between innocence and ignorance, but most of all, it's, it's an open mind. That's what I want. So, so I try to be receptive to inspiration wherever I see it or encounter it. And so the first time I sort of went on tour with King Crimson, they started off with a friends and family show in Poznań in Poland so i went there and i every time i'd sort of go to a town with them i try and hang around during soundcheck and practice and then i would wander off into the town to see if i could just get any local color and stuff and poznan hilariously um and appropriately has
2: a record shop called Fripsklep. (laughs) he's never visited what hey robert there's a record store named after you oh sod off You know, I mean, that's what Um, I expect his reaction to be. So I went
1: there and I did an interview with the owner, who was very nice. Then after one of the shows, I was walking back through Poznan to the hotel, and I walked into this huge communist square in the center of town, and it was raining, and I heard tango music playing. And I looked at the end of the square, and there were these people dancing, tango dancing in the rain. And it was extraordinarily beautiful. And so I had cameras with me, and I was like, well, I'll just film this because it's so pretty. I didn't really, didn't have anything specific in mind, but there was a point where, from the big interview I did with Robert, he has this, you know, he was talking about some of the more kind of philosophical, spiritual ideas behind what he does. It's very interesting, but it's a bit dry to watch. So the editor, Ollie Huddleston, and I were looking for a way to kind of not show what he was saying, but provide the audience like with something to to entertain them whilst these these sort of more metaphysical ideas are being spoken about, so we use the dancers and moonchild um and they, they dance perfectly to moonchild in order sure. to sort of if you like give you a spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down yeah, and then the other thing at play there is I don't know if you guys have seen the movie buffalo sixty six by Vincent Gallo. Yeah. But um was that a cat you just That was my
3: moggy, Yes. He just jumped okay. onto my studio desk. He makes regular appearances on the That's, podcast
1: unexpectedly okay. though, Toby. In Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66, there's this beautiful sequence where Christina Ricci dances to Moonchild on her own in a in a deserted bowling alley. So it's a it's a gentle um, homage to to the work of Vincent Gallo.
0: I fell madly in love with him. Oh, they haven't won a championship since 1966, and I
2: missed that game because that's the day I had Billy. Did you like Buffalo too? One of the things you captured in that dry interview, as you called it, with Fripp, is his description of silence as a vehicle for the music it takes you to a sacred space, he called it. Mm. And essentially, that explains an awful lot about where Robert Fripp comes from in creating this whole thing. Also, I want to say that your editors, what you say his name was? Ollie Huddleston. Amazing. Your mm. editing gave me eargasms throughout the entire watching of the film. And it's one of the things that I think makes it very compelling and maybe mandatory for any Casey fan.
1: Thank you. Ollie's a musician, and um, ever since I first started making films, I've generally had the best editing relationships with people who, if they're not musicians, they at least have a very strong musical sensibility. You know, one of the things that play with the structure of the film, not quite to present it as a gig, but to have a strong idea of our set list, as it were, and something that I found a bit frustrating about some of the reviews that people said, there's not enough music in it. It's like there's fucking music through every single bit of the film, except when people are talking about silence, generally speaking, you know, there are some quite deep cuts in there as well. But if people are referring, if the haters are referring to an absence of live music, it was, you know, partly because I was not allowed near anywhere near the band when they were actually playing live. And the, most of the live shots that you see in there where they're playing in venues, I stole. And one of them, the last shot at the um, Royal Albert Hall, I got into a lot of trouble for for taking. Um, certainly on the, on the extras, the DVD extras, we have this entire performance uh, of the band where they're playing in the round just for the cameras. And we sort of cut through the film to that as if you're you're visiting a live gig with with the band and that gig is available in its entirety on on the dvd
2: what was uh, the gig that that looked like they were in an ancient stadium
1: what that was, was that Pompe- footage Pompe- that was
2: pompeii Pompe- Pompe? oh yeah wow. yeah now
1: did you yeah. shoot that or did that no i shot that and you know but like from a very, i had this camera that like you'll see in parts of the film where it's, it's slightly out of focus or it's like a little too grainy And that's a that's a flaw of the camera, but it was a flaw that I I said I had to accept because the camera had this incredible zoom on it, which Mm. meant that I could get close to what was happening without being noticed. I was far enough away that I couldn't hear myself being shouted at.
3: That's interesting that you mention that because in the documentary the story of the photographer who broke the code of shooting the show got his, got tossed out of the venue and then they took his film and tore it up yep. because I guess Robert's anxiety or he's got some sort of issue where he doesn't want that sort of distraction while they're performing. It's great I think that it's that intense because they're making sure that they deliver for the people that are paying and watching them.
1: Yeah, I think that's perfectly fair. And and also, as the as the as he's a musician later says in the film, you know, that they're creating something special up there. And, and if somebody ruins it because they're more interested in having a record of them ruining that moment than being in the moment, it ruins it for everybody else.
2: Very true. And it's a very large and growing school of artists who feel this way because of all the distractions for them but also they want the audience to be focused on what they're doing not whether their camera is getting it right
1: i also as an audience member the last thing i want to do is have my view of the band that i've spent a lot of money and given up time to see blocked by somebody's fucking iphone
3: 10 buddy and particularly
1: when they're shooting it in portrait
3: mode not even in landscape 100 percent
1: i used to be a i was a photographer before i became a filmmaker and i photographed lots of bands and i always took it you know as it was so important for me not to get in the way of the audience at a gig even when you know i was there professionally and yeah i think it ruins concerts
3: i agree 100 percent. i love the fact that there are bands that demand you keep your phones off and you get removed from venues there is a shot
1: of somebody being told off for using their phone at Pompeii and it was only it was only after we'd finished the film that I realized that the person telling that person off was me (laughs) 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 so I've cleared. I I mean it just you know let's make it clear is that I have some distance from King Crimson, but, but I have drunk a lot of the Kool-Aid at this point yeah. as well.
3: That's fair. You're working with them very closely for an extended period of time. That makes total sense. Another question that I have, and this came up during the movie as well, is that King Crimson is a royal figure who is great, but monumentally struggling, a regal animal always trying to emerge. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: You're asking me to explain Jamie Muir.
3: <laughs> a little bit, if you can. Um,
1: well, I think it, in, insofar as I understand what Jamie was saying, I think it's similar to what Robert says at the beginning of the film, which is that that, that King Crimson, for, for members of King Crimson, represents potential as much as it represents actuality. It's a bit like Plato's Cave, that like what you're seeing is a shadow of the perfect form uh, and that everyone in the band is always aiming towards that because nothing is ever good enough. That's a very powerful way of getting things to be really fucking good. Yeah. It's but understood,
2: also, right? By being in the band, you kind of understand that that's the way it is. The, yeah, and
1: it drives the, you fucking crazy because yeah. nothing's ever good enough. It, it's, you know, Robert says, you know, it's an acute suffering because what, what, you know they've never quite achieved their potential so and then so i guess that's kind of partly what jamie's referring to and then in terms of it coming out of the marble, as he refers to it it's like some of michelangelo's unfinished sculptures is maybe there's that sense of it's like it's trying to break free of of the confines of genre and people's expectations you know to make like new art.
3: My last question for you Toby is what did Toby Ames learn about Toby Ames during the making of this film? Oh,
1: that's good. Uh, that Toby Ames <laughs> could uh, do with a little more discipline in his life. <sighs> that I think I think that suffering is an inherent part of the creative process. Simultaneously, I think it is possible to be Sympathetic and empathetic to other people suffering in the creative process, particularly if you are the one who is responsible for being in that set of circumstances. You know, I used to joke well, on shoots, I would say, It's not my art unless somebody else is suffering for it. I don't want there to be any truth in that statement anymore. You know, is um, that a change in you? I mean, I think I hope I've always been empathetic and sympathetic. to, to, you know, the challenges I set for the people I work with. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to be more so. Um, But I think that creatively, I think there's something very powerful and effective about choosing the right person and then giving them as much freedom as possible to do the thing that you've hired
2: them to do. Do you feel like you were given the time, energy and space to do that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, I, to be really frank, you know, it's been a total head fuck working with King Crimson and particularly with Robert Fripp, but I've learned an enormous amount. I've made a film that I'm very proud of, that other people seem to love, and one resonates just outside of King Crimson as well, because I think the film's got interesting things to say about time and mortality and the creative process, and particularly... You know, the core question at the heart of the film is, are you willing to make the necessary sacrifices to bring great art into the world? And the answer to that question for me is, just about at this point. Those are, those are challenges that anybody faces, whether you're gonna make, try and make red or whether you're gonna make a chocolate cake. You're still gonna have to make certain sacrifices to do something great. And you just have to find an accommodation in yourself as to whether the sacrifices you make are worth the thing that comes out of it at the end of the day.
2: He is Toby Amy's, the director of In the Court of the Crimson King, King Crimson at 50. Uh, Tell us uh, how people can find your website and how they can find you on social media.
1: Well, it took... (sighs) a lot of time and i had to hire several consultants to come up with the title of my website which is www.tobyamies.com. it's just my name um and i'm at toby amy's on twitter and instagram and all of the Social media hell
2: holes um, Anti-social media is more like it sometimes. There we go. People. Exactly. Um, well, so will, will you hear fight. from the haters? Because uh, King Crimson fans are very, very particular. Have you been hearing from the haters?
1: I, to be honest with you, I've got funny. If you've got a couple of seconds, I've got a very yeah. funny story about that. Oh yeah. So I, um, I was taking a train trip from Newcastle to London, which is quite a lengthy train trip. I was on the train. I was bored. And I was like, let's just have a look at what's happening online about the film and deep in the youtube comments on the trailer i found somebody who'd written something a little pissy about the film so i was like what well, i think it's not quite right it's up to people what they think about the film but i don't like it if they've made assumptions about the film and then they've made a judgment based on those assumptions so assume makes an ass out of you and me as they say So I sat there and I sort of, I just had it, I think I've just had it on my phone. So I had to do that thing where I was like replying to the comment and then it's really difficult because you have got you can't see if the punctuation is right because you're dealing with, you know. I basically took a three hour train journey to write a very particular response to somebody, one person, probably anonymous on, on YouTube who'd written something slightly pissy about the film. Posted it. Felt briefly sort of self satisfied and then thought, what the fuck are you doing, wasting three and a half hours of your life responding to, you know, <laughs> somebody said something slightly pissy about your film, which it took you like half an hour to find in amongst all of the positive comments. So I was just like, you loser, you know. Ah. And then, <laughs> and then about three days later, I get an email. The email address is absolutely brilliant, but. I get an email from Robert saying, good work on the internet the other day. I ah! just love that like the only other person who is like trawling through the comments as specifically as I am is, is Robert. I just, I just was like, oh, that's, there's something so perfect about that.
2: You know that um, you're working on a project that they're all in on as well when he's out there checking it too. That's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, it's it's just but it is also I mean it's easy to make a joke about it but there's something about the attention to detail there and and that I think that I think King Crimson fans are very lucky to have somebody I mean he doesn't suffer fools gladly and he doesn't allow himself to be pushed around by the fans but he's willing to engage with them directly in a way that I've got a lot of admiration for. You know, he's an infuriating individual but he is also a a unique and great artist.
2: Thanks for coming to talk about him, Toby, and the rest of the guys, all other 18 members of King Crimson through the years. An amazing film. Uh, If you've got your comments to make to us, it's be nice. Uh, It's imbalancehistory at gmail.com. If you want to send an email, you can find us on social media as well. All the episodes of the podcast are on imbalancehistory.com toby amy's our guest it has been a fascinating time just sitting here getting your take on a film that we both immediately
3: fell in love with so thank you oh for bless that. you thank you gentlemen no, no thank you no 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 let's, thank you one last question what's your favorite king crimson song
1: i wouldn't say song i would say um album i red is the one for me um because i as we've established i'm from the home of metal And that record to me is both a metal record and a punk record and a King Crimson record you Mm -hmm. know it's um it's like most of my friends don't know King Crimson because we all grew up as punks and we were told not to listen to prog bands and unfortunately (laughs) King Crimson got lumped in there but if you if I did have to say a song it would either be um Matakudasai and there's an alternate version of Matakudasai which is Extra- well, I mean, they're, both, they're all beautiful, but this the, the alternate one I'm particularly fond of. And then also P- Prince Rupert's Lament, is just the guitar on that is extraordinary. And when I was making the film and sort of wandering around the halls, you know, sometimes you would hear somebody just warming up or playing, and, and you realize what an extraordinary privilege it was to be so close to that. I think it's good to have distance from your subject, and it's good not to know too much about your subject. But I was aware of the enormous privilege that I was in, the privileged position that I was in, in order to be able to to hear some of that stuff. And there's a couple of times I heard Prince Rupert's Lament, the guitar parts up close on that. And it was just,
2: you know, it's a thing of real beauty. A fan moment. You're allowed to have those, even though you're a filmmaker and all that detachment stuff, you know, it's allowed. Thank you. Yeah. Toby Ames, our guest this week on the podcast. Sadly, it's time for us to go. Until the next time that we crack the mics here in the Dark Talk Media Studios, I'm Ray Coob.
3: I'm Marcus Goldman.
2: I'm Toby Ames. Thanks, Ray and Marcus. (laughs) And you have been listening to the
3: Imbalance History of Rock and Roll.